Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer's new study, What Does Spirituality Mean to Us?, reveals how spirituality informs our understanding of ourselves and each other and inspires us to take action for the common good. Explore these findings and more at spiritualitystudy.org. I'm Krista Tippett. Up next, my unedited live conversation with music with banjo icons Bela Fleck and Abigail Washburn. There is, as always, a shorter produced version of this wherever you get your podcasts. So I was telling them at Nashville Public Radio today, I was telling them the story of how um, we had the invitation to come do an event in Nashville, and Trent Gillis, who's here somewhere, um, put a note out on Facebook and Twitter and asking people who we should interview. And so a, a, bunch, a bunch of names came back, and, um, and then your two names came back, and I just hadn't connected you to Nashville. And you don't know this, I haven't told you this yet, but... We intersected in a place far from Nashville. We didn't meet, but in Tecate at Rancho La Puerta. No. Yeah. <laughs> Was that two years ago? Do you, I don't know how often you go there. Two oh years ago goodness. at New Year's, I think. Oh, New Year's. Right. Yes. And I thought, these people are so lovely. They're lovely musicians and lovely people. <laughs> So, so when your names came across, I said, that's it. Oh, my gosh. And here we are. This is good. <laughs> yeah. So, and I, I, Abigail, I know that you have a habit of bursting out into song spontaneously. <laughs> and I want to encourage you to do that tonight if you feel like it. <laughs> you can dance anything that, or if you want to grab your banjo. Okay. Um, if we have half as much, if this is half as delightful for you all as it was for me preparing, then we're going to have a good, a good uh, hour here. And we'll have one more song from them at the end. And we are recording this for a later broadcast. So I will do a radio thing somewhere in the middle. Um, and also, just finally, I want to say, do you like my boots? Because oh my I can never wear these boots in Minnesota in May. Oh. And I thought, I'm coming to Nashville. So hot. <laughs> All right. So, you know, uh, <laughs> where, where I always start my conversations, whether I'm talking to a physicist or a banjo player, is um, I'd like to hear a little bit about whether there was a religious or spiritual background to your childhood. And Abigail, I'd like to start with you. Right. You grew up in a few places, Chicago, Washington, Minnesota a little bit. I forgot that you were going <clears> to... <throat> Study that I've become an I'm, expert I'm, on. I'm, I have. Yes, yes. I, I'm. <laughs> oh my. Um, yeah. Well, my uh, grandmother, who um, was in Evanston, Illinois, most of her life, uh, raised my mother there, a Unitarian Universalist. Uh-huh. And then I was also raised by my mother and my brother, a Unitarian Universalist. And if people don't know what that is, just in case, uh, Unitarian. Um, I. I think, you know, in the, in the faith we're learned to never think we know everything. So, um, but it, it means the unity or the Trinity is the unity. Uh, all gods are one God. And universalism uh, means universal salvation. All people are and will be saved. Um, and everybody takes their own walk, their own path to, in that and to that salvation. Um, and it's something for us to learn from in our own faith. And I was raised from 3 to 11 uh, years old in 
Montgomery Village, Maryland, and the religious education in that UU church, we actually went to everybody else's church. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we learned about um, what it was like to, to go to temple or synagogue or yeah. um, uh, mosque, uh, all kinds of different churches. And uh, we were learning about that to inform our own faith. Mm-hmm. Um, and Intentionally, that was a plan. Yeah, yeah, that was the religious education curriculum. Yeah, yeah. and uh, I was also living in a place, Montgomery Village, Maryland, which is just outside of Washington D.C., which is incredibly diverse. So, I grew up going to dinner at my friend Lisa's house, and they called God Adonai, and we went to my friend Young's house, and they said Buddha, and I went to. Shariar's house, and they said Allah, and my friend Lauren and their parents prayed to Jesus before dinner, and all these people to me, to me were God. And then I moved to uh, my parents, who are here in the audience from oh, Oregon. So they are so <laughs> wonderful and sweet, and they're here. Yeah. Um, I hope I can't see them though, because that would really freak me out. Um, <laughs> I love you. Uh, <laughs> we moved to. Minnesota. We moved to Edina, Minnesota, and my, my dad at that point was um, making really good money, and we, we moved to a wealthy suburb of Minneapolis, and my mom recalls the story that when I came home from school the first day, I said, Mom, where are all the people? <laughs> I was going to say, Edina, Minnesota is not what you just described in Maryland. <laughs> and, and what I meant was, why is everybody white? And, mm-hmm. and for the first time in my life, um, <laughs> for, for the first time in my life, I uh, felt what it was like to be, to feel like an other, to feel different, and uh, to feel in the margins, even though for the first time in my life I actually looked like everyone. Uh, and it was, a, it was a very strange feeling. And the religious education at that church um, in Minneapolis was all about social action hmm. and community service informing our faith. And so I ended up working at a domestic violence shelter, helping to intake uh, young people that were coming in with their parents, their mothers, and I ended up working at an AIDS hospice and mm. stayed there for about three or four years volunteering. And um, I was the kid in high school that instead of having like band posters on my wall, I had Martin Luther King Jr. <laughs> right. and Gandhi and the United Nations mural. And instead of going to my senior prom, I decided <laughs> to go to the United Nations Youth Disarmament Conference in <laughs> Canada. And I ended up coming back in time for prom because a cute guy asked me, but... Um, I actually did think that was more important, you know, wow. to go to the UN Youth Disarmament Conference. Wow. But um, so that's that was my my childhood, as much as I should probably say. Mm. And by the time I was leaving high school and going off for all the different adventures, the next chapter, I I would say that I was uh, I believe that my faith and my spiritual path was about cultivating myself for good action. Mm. Mm. Okay. Well, we'll come back to that. Um. Bela, how do you think about the, how would you think about the religious or spiritual background of your childhood? How would you think about that now? You grew up in New York. Yeah. Um, I was raised a, uh, a harmless heathen. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, and, um, yeah. So um, my, uh, my, my mother's family's Jewish. Uh, my father's family wasn't, but they were, they were split up when I was a kid. And actually, I didn't meet him until I was in my 40s yeah. when I searched him out, uh, which is another story. And, um, but it wasn't a, an observing kind of uh, family or, uh, you know, um, we, had, we did the, the, big, the biggies, you know, Passover yeah. and, and Hanukkah. 
Um, but I don't feel like, uh, well, I know I didn't feel like I, I had any kind of religious or spiritual thing going on uh, as I grew up. Um, and um, I think I was looking for something hmm. when the banjo turned up. Right. And it sort of took the place of a lot of that for me. It sort of became my most important thing. Hmm. And, um, and a lot of the things in religion, you know, you can find in, in music, too. So I'm hoping that that's going to work out for me. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think it's done fine. If there's a hereafter. It, it, <laughs> yeah, just as long as you have your banjo with you. I, um, I sense that your mother must have communed musically, if not spiritually, with music also. She, this is so fascinating. She named you after not one, but three uh, Central European Composers. Yeah, actually, that was my father, who I didn't know, and um, he, he named and uh, and so, believe me, I got the better names than my older brother. I won't go really? into that right <laughs> no, now. Really? What yeah. are your three names, Bela? Um, Bela Anton Leos Fleck. Yeah. I remember if it was a boy, he would name them, and if it was a girl, she would name the girl. Oh, but it ended up being two boys. Really? Yeah. Uh, so Bart- what, after Bartok, uh, Janacek, Leos Janacek, and uh, Anton Bayburn. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So some some pretty out there stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but not banjo music. I mean, different out there in a different well, way. Well, it could be. Well, it could be. It could be. Well, you've <laughs> yeah. done. Yeah, you've done that. Um, and but I mean, the banjo also wasn't your first instrument. You played French horn, right? That's in a high bit school. of a myth. Um, <laughs> Is it? Yeah. Is that true? Yeah. What happened was. There you go. You can't believe everything you read on the internet. It's true. I I was uh, I took a test for this this school. Um, Uptown called well, I guess it's the Fame School because um, this was in New York City. Uh, it was called Music and Art. There's actually several schools that Fame, the Fame television show and movie were based on uh, music and art, art and design, and um, I think there was a third one. But uh, anyway, I tried out for it, and which meant I took a musical aptitude test. And I played guitar at that time. I played some folk songs. Mm-hmm. I had a, a killing version of Here Comes the Sun. Which uh, he I still pl- plays on occasion <laughs> yeah, on guitar, and I got into the school uh, playing that, and uh, and I think I was rated um, number I guess number t- number three of possible talent with four being the most talented because um, we found all this stuff out you know we found out what you're rating and that, which is pretty weird I think I don't think they should have told anybody that but anyway when I got in the school there was no guitar. Uh, teaching or anything like that and so they said we'll put you on a real instrument um, and we need a French horn really badly Okay, got so it. they put me in a room and I tried to play French horn for a season and never got the first I could never even get the F which is the first note you play on, on a French horn I could never even make the first note until finally they said you know we don't have very many boys in the chorus and, uh, and I was moved into the chorus where I just sort of screamed all the way through high school Meanwhile, I was learning to play the banjo yeah. on the side. And, and you discovered the banjo. You were captivated by Earl um, Scruggs. Yeah, Earl Scruggs, the Beverly Hillbillies theme, which actually, you know, people talk about a come-to-God moment. And uh, for most banjo players of note in the bluegrass world, hearing Earl Scruggs is that moment. Hmm. And it, there's before and after. So, so talk, tell us about that. What is that? What is it that happens in that moment? awesome it was uh, I, I remember it was like light bulb light, lights going off in my every note was like a light going off in my brain and and I was this was way before I got my first banjo this is before I played guitar um, I never had the ego at that time to believe that uh, <laughs> that I, I could actually play the banjo when, when I finally found out what it was but yeah. but um, it was just a, an amazing sound and, and I now I try to explain it as being a high-tech 
yet primitive sound. Because it's not just like a, like a computer can play fast, but you don't get excited. You know, but there's something so earthy and deep, especially the, about the way Earl Scruggs played, um, which, which turned people into believers. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what did you say a minute ago? You said something about real. I mean, you've said this before, that people talk about the banjo as though it's not a real instrument. Um, which then, I guess, gets at the question of what, how we define real. Right, and I think both. I think you're both really eloquent. Well, first of all, I think it's fascinating that um, neither one of you. You're both actually came from the north. Neither one of you like grew up surrounded by banjo and bluegrass. Um, yeah, you became believers, as you said. Um, so talk about talk about that about the reality. Like what what is real? Um, what is about real? this music that captured you? That just takes you away. Well, my come-to-God moment in the, the folk music world was hearing an LP of Doc Watson yeah, singing and playing Shady Grove. Yeah. Is this where you want me to bust into song? Yeah, I do. <laughs> <laughs> I was hoping you'd ask. Shady Grove, my little love, Shady Grove, my darling, Shady Grove, my little love, I'm going back to Harlan. When I heard that sound <clears throat> and Doc singing it... Um, for me, there was this moment where I just knew I was hearing, and I should preface this, that I was really immersed in China at this point, yeah. and loving Chinese culture, and, and studying the language really intensely, and been there a number of times. And when I heard Doc Watson, I felt like I heard the beauty of authentic American culture. And I wanted it so badly. I'd been looking for it so badly. And I finally heard it when I heard Doc, this high, lonesome, searching, struggling, suffering, hopeful voice uh, singing this ancient, ancient melody and these old, old words. And it didn't matter who owned it or where it came from, but this man was sharing it with me. And I knew that I had to, I had to go get a banjo and I had to learn Shady Grove. And instead of doing karaoke in China with my clients when I would become a lawyer someday, I would play ballads from Appalachia, of course. So. So like, the, uh, can, so I, can I throw something yeah, in? Yeah. Um, for me, what I think the word I thought of when you when you were talking about that, what you actually heard, was the truth. Something that yeah. was the truth, and and I think that the greatest musicians that when I think about, and even like BB King, who we just lost, but Earl Scruggs, and and um, even Miles Davis, some of these people that played something that somehow seemed so profound, and these are just instrumentalists. Abby's talking about Doc Watson, who could use words, yeah. uh, you know, but um, it just sounds so true, uh, even though it's. It's just notes, you know, there's something more about it. And, and this notion of roots, like roots music, which, again, it's, a, it's kind of a, it's a language we throw around. But, but when you start talking about what the music conveys and where it comes from, you realize how deep that is and what it touches in us. Well, something that I learned from uh, a movie that Bela made, and this isn't a plug, this is just the truth. I, I, I watched Bela's documentary, Throw Down Your Heart, and you called me on your big global phone from over in Africa a number of times. And uh, I think it was when you were in Tanzania. Uh, he was learning the story of how, on that side, the, band, this, this, the journey of the banjo to America You happened. were tracing the original roots of the banjo in Africa. Yeah. Right? yeah. Mm-hmm. And what he had learned, and part of the reason the documentary is called Throw Down Your Heart, is because... Uh, as people were being boarded onto the slave ships, they said, throw your heart down here. You're not going to want to carry it to where you're going. And a lot of the slave masters figured out 
that if they had a banjo player on, la- on board playing the music of home, more of the cargo would live to the other side. <sighs> so the origins of the banjo in America are the bitterest of roots. Mm-hmm. Uh, makes me want to cry just thinking about it in this moment. And it, it formed an amazing origin to what became a blend of, of traditions from, from Africa, Ireland, and Scotland when those fiddlers and that, those banjo players, those banjo players from Africa and those fiddlers from Scotland and Ireland started playing plantation dances together. That's what really started mm. what we know of as that early Appalachian and that early American sound, at least for that part of America. And uh, that sound is based in this bitter root, but with this actual hope, this hope that I can live, that I can live, I can survive. It's an amazing uh, tradition. Yeah, and I think that that hope uh, is something that you feel in the music, along with, there's all, I mean, just the song you just sang. Sorry, what's the name of that, the song you sang starting? Oh, and am I born to die? Yeah. Yeah, that's a little light ditty. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, but that's the thing. But that's the thing. This kind of music takes us to the hard, bitter, sorrowful places of life and also um, insists on the hope and humanity yeah. that it's is insistent. right there. Yeah. Not in spite of it, but woven into it. Yeah. That's where I hear the truth, yeah. Yeah. Um, there's this, actually, there's a story you've told um, about your son, Juno. By the way, where does his name come from? I don't know any Central European composers named <laughs> with the first name Juno. <laughs> My grandmother's name was June Carvel. Okay. And June was a fabulous woman. Okay. In fact, she got us to play our first show together as a duo. She loved Bela so much. And she insisted that we play a show at her Unitarian Universalist church. Okay. So that was our first show together. <laughs> and she uh, ran a roller skating rink in downtown Chicago for a long, long time, along with her husband, Alan. And um, she's a formidable woman. She uh, inline skated an inline skating marathon at the age of 84. And she won. And she won. <laughs> But she was the only contestant in her age group. <laughs> but she finished. Yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. And she had a wonderful sense of humor as she was getting very old and, and uh, not remembering things. And, you know, she'd get in the grandma loop where they yeah. say the same thing again yeah. and again, you know. Oh, I, did I order the omelet? I want the omelet, you know. <laughs> grandma, you've ordered it four times, uh, you know. Uh, she would laugh at herself. She laughed at herself mm. until the moment she died. Mm. And we, um, we love her so much. And uh, so when Juno was born, which was just about a year and a half or two after she died, it was actually Bela's mother who thought of the idea of it's naming great. him it's Juno. It's great. It's a great name. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and so think, to, you know, to this idea of the reality and the truth in this music, um, there's a story you told um, the first track on your new album, which is your first, or your first album together, um, is I've Been Working on the Railroad, which you sing in a minor key. But I love this, um, this story that you told about how, maybe this isn't true either, correct me if I heard this on the internet. Well, our publicist writes a lot of these stories. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that, so you, maybe, Bela, you were traveling, and Abigail, you were home with Juno, yeah. and Juno was banging on the table. Yeah. 
And you got I'm really so excited about that, which, you know, this is a life lesson for other parents who are not musicians, because you thought, he's learning rhythm. Yes, banging I on was the so table. excited, yeah. Because um, he was banging in time. It was, was consistent. He was banging yeah. in time? <laughs> are you sure? <laughs> Close enough. <laughs> That's a fair question. But I mean, but, but that, that, that these, I mean, and then what, what I remembered is somebody, ta- when I was learning to cross-country ski in Minnesota, somebody taught me how to keep my pace by singing, I've been working on the railroad. And I think, here's the thing, I think a lot of people might think, oh, bluegrass music or folk music is not my music, is not my taste. And yet, so much of, of this music is... Like woven into our lives in ways that we don't ever don't even reflect on. Yeah. I I I don't think. Well, let me put it this way: some bluegrass music might not be your taste, but some other bluegrass music might be. And if you just let uh, the name bluegrass repel you because you just heard some bluegrass you didn't like, it, yeah. you'll miss out on a bunch of great music. And I think uh, whenever we decide we don't like a kind of music. Um, we're the one that loses because there's always something in every field that's beautiful that, that you would like. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I, it, it, this was just, it was uh, kind of revelatory for me to, to think about this when I was getting ready to talk to the two of you. This is not folk music, but the first thing I thought of was when we were learning baby um, CPR, they taught us to sing Stayin' Alive, actually. Mm-hmm. Stayin' Alive. Stand alive. <laughs> really? Right, that's the tempo. That's the tempo. Yeah. Of, yeah. That you're supposed to. Wow. Yeah. <clears throat> so if anybody out there is in trouble right now, BGs <laughs> can help you Music out. and parenting. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'd like to circle back to China. Yeah. Um, because this is an amazing part of your story. Um, but it, it's a little cleaned up in the way it gets told. So I was really happy. You know, it's just like, I mean, it is an amazing story. You, you're, you become fluent. You're going to go to law school in China, in Beijing. Uh, and then you hear Doc Watson, and you pick up the banjo. And, um, but I also found um, something you wrote um, about how it wasn't an immediate love, a love affair with China, right. right? And when the story gets condensed, it's just that love of that passion that's there for you now. Um, you wrote about, you know, you were at Colorado College and uh, you saw this sign tacked to a bulletin board in a dank and narrow path leading to the university cafeteria, <laughs> study Chinese in China. So dramatic. <laughs> yeah. And, and you talked about that first time you went there for the summer and you're sweating profusely on a July day and you, know, you said my interaction with the Chinese people could be broken into two categories. One, they aggressively try to sell me stuff. Two, they practice their English on me. Um, <laughs> I hated the way China made me feel unwanted like a resource for exploitation. <laughs> but, so, you, so you had this experience of being there and, and feeling outside, but then you went back and, and you, were, you were drawn in. Um, so talk a little bit about, um, I'm, I'm just interested in that kind of trajectory about what it, and so again, you know, then you decided to, you were going to be there for world peace and you were going to go study, you were going to study law and you learned China. But what was, what was the revelation when you heard Doc Watson singing Shady Grove um, that was connected to that and yet took you in a completely different direction with it? Well, at the, at the point I'd heard Doc Watson, I had already fallen in love with China. Right. And at that point, rather than feeling like an outsider that was frustrated that I couldn't get in, 
I was starting to feel like someone who was finding a place there. And I would hear people, you know, once I could speak a little bit, I could start to hear what people were saying about Americans. And I had traveled other places in the world and was hearing things that people were saying about Americans too. This was the early 90s. And, um, kind of thought of us as big bullies and homogenizers and uh, people that wanted the world to be like them. And uh, a lot of people thought of Hollywood right away, real dangerous movies. People would be like, you know, I don't want to go to Los Angeles because I'll get shot. Everybody gets shot in Los Angeles in the movies, you know? So I, I wasn't thinking about it consciously, but when I heard Doc Watson, I realized that I really needed to find what it was about America that I could believe in so strongly and stand in front of my Chinese friends and be like, look, this is real and this is beautiful and this is something I, I want to share with you and I'm proud of. This is a part of who I am. It was much about self-discovery as it was about sharing right. something beautiful from my culture. Hmm. And then there was that I mean, you said this a minute ago, how you, you'd really become so, um, I think you used the word obsessed with China's ancient, deep ancient culture and that, yeah. that, that realization that this music actually carried that, that depth well. and, and that age and those layers of history and time. That's exactly right. I mean, people talk about America being a, a new, new country, and indeed we are a new nation um, yeah. in comparison to most around the world, and especially in comparison to China. But the music, just like I learned in Bela's film, that banjo comes from Africa. It comes from these ancient civilizations that have been making gourd, uh, gourd banjos with hide heads and gut strings for, for centuries. And it comes from Ireland and Scotland and where these melodies have been you know, to medieval times and before. And that came to America, and it, it became this beautiful new form of, of uh, this beautiful new sound of suffering and hope. Yeah. It's ancient. By, by the way, I, um, I, was, I was trying desperately to get Pete Seeger to do an interview for my film, and, uh, and I would call him up, and he'd say, oh, I'm, I'm far too busy. And then he would talk to me for three hours about the history <laughs> of the banjo. And uh, so try, try him again in a few months. So I tried him again in a few months. The same exact thing happened. And what he said in both conversations, pretty much the same thing, was, uh, oh, the banjo doesn't actually come from Africa. It, comes from, it came down the Tigris-Euphrates River. Uh, it's down the, through the trade routes into Africa. It actually comes from... So I was like, wait, are you saying that America's instrument is actually from Iraq? This was like during the Iraq War. I yeah. thought, wow, this is great. But unfortunately, I never got to do that interview with him. Oh. Yeah. Do, you, do you think that's right? Do you, have you traced that history? Well, he seemed to think so. Yeah. He seemed to know and what he was talking you about. You've got to want to believe Pete Seeger. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> I don't fact check Pete Seeger. I probably should. But. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> yeah. Um, was there any? Was there? What did you learn in that in that journey that you took? That was there anything you learned that really kind of opened up the instrument for you in in new ways? Um, I think for me it was more like I was. Uh, this was after about 15 years straight of of the flectone, Bela Fleck and the flectones, yeah. and um, and that was an area where we had a lot of control. 
as a group. Like we, uh, except live, we, we improvised a lot, but in the studio or in the composing, there was a lot of control. And, um, and, this, but, and yeah, I found that whenever we would invite someone to guest with us and get up on stage with us, and we had no, you know, we, nobody knew what was gonna happen, all these awesome things would happen that we never could have planned. So when I went to Africa, part of it was there was no way I could be prepared for what was going to happen in Africa. When you played music with and for people? Right, because, because um, I was there for six weeks and we, almost every day I was playing and recording with people I'd never met before playing music that in most cases I couldn't learn ahead of time. So um, I had to sort of just let go and let things happen a lot of the time and sort of allow, and it's sort of kind of like a fight or flight uh, response. You could look mm. at it that way or you could say it's a, you know, a spiritual thing that something comes in to help you when you need it the most. But it seems as I got to go back and study what happened on that trip, those are the moments that are the most magical is when, when nobody uh, had time to plan and we just started playing. And I, I was able, because I edited the movie, I had some control on the back end and I, and I could make sure that that's what you guys heard when you saw it. But I think it was, it was a lot about that, that, that odd combination of being prepared and practicing and working and caring and doing everything you can to be ready. But when it comes down to the moment, you have to let go and throw all that away and, hmm. and hope that the gods are with you, if there are gods. Yeah. <laughs> Bela called me while he was over there and you were almost having a, a nervous breakdown. You were like, they're playing and I don't know where the one is. I can't find the one. What do you mean the one? The, just the beat? The, yeah. Like, Where's the downbeat? Really? You know, really? Uh, African music is so layered and so rhythmically uh, complex that, yeah. um, and, and if you ask somebody over there, they don't really know what you're talking about. Everybody knows their part. They've been playing it. It's been, they learned it. A lot of it was passed down from centuries and villages that all play. This family plays this part of the beat. That part of the family plays that part of the beat. And, you know, when they all get together to play music, they go into their thing and it all just is this incredible gel. And, and so to try and figure out how, how to play in that music was overwhelming. And what Abby said is, well, I don't think you actually have to know to play good music. I think this is where you let go and you play what comes to you and, and uh, it'll be okay. And it was. Did, I don't think able? I said anything that deep. I think I just said, can't you, can't you just play something that sounds good? <laughs> That's pretty much the same thing. <laughs> if it sounds good, then that should be good enough. Yeah. Right. In that situation. Mm-hmm. And then there were some songs I could prepare for. Mm-hmm. You know, and those ones I could know what I thought, where I thought the beat was. Mm. And you two have also... Have you got, you've gone to China as well, right? I know you've yeah, gone back there. Yeah, I've been there three times, and one, one time we got to go to Tibet together. And uh-huh. it was, so it was um, apparently one of the first American and Chinese-sponsored trips over there, which was a pretty incredible experience for both of all, all of us. We were with the Sparrow Quartet at that time with Casey Driesen and Ben Soli, and we had a pretty incredible experience over there. Yeah. Had our guards and... and our, uh, our minders. Our minders and, yeah. Protecting... We, uh, we, we get to a new town, and yeah. the same person would walk by. <laughs> Wait. <laughs> it's true. But, but haven't you, have you also been over there kind of not just taking this music, but also collecting their music and doing well, you some... You did your Silk Road trip. Yeah, I've done a number of... On almost every trip I've done, I've... Uh, tried to collaborate with somebody locally no matter where I end up mm-hmm. and I just ask somebody the sound guy or whatever or you know really if you're you're doing a proper tour you're being handled by the cultural bureau the central yeah. um, 
Ministry of Culture. And so I would call, call ahead or ask someone in our party to call ahead and see if we could collaborate with somebody really you know, great in each town who plays some kind of folk music. And, and that, led to meet, that has led to meeting the most incredible wonderful local musicians all over China. So right. I feel like I have gotten to jam and play with Uyghurs, Tibetans, uh, Mongolians, uh, Dong people, Han, wonderful Han uh, folk music players from all over China. And I had one really memorable experience that was of um, being in a, in a city and calling ahead and, and asking for someone to come. And this old man showed up backstage and he had an arhu case. And an arhu is a little uh, two-stringed two instrument, actually, but the bow goes in between both of the strings. And it snake, sounds... Snakeskin covered. Snakeskin covered. Banjo, really, that's a violin. Mm. Yeah, tiny, tiny head. And it sits on your knee and you play it. Sounds like a human voice almost. It sounds really? like a um, human voice to some and a dying cat to others. It really depends. Right. I have like to love Bill it. Like Bill Monroe. <laughs> <laughs> uh, can we cut that out? <laughs> edit this one, maybe. I'll decide later. <laughs> and he showed up and, and uh, he saw me and this wonderful band of musicians that I was there with from America and uh, he just didn't look happy at all. He, he looked at me and said, uh, Americans and Chinese cannot, simply cannot play music together. It's too different. And I looked at him and I was like, oh, okay. Uh, well, would you just play for us then? Um, and he pulled out his arhu and he started playing this breathtakingly gorgeous uh, melody from Tibet, actually. And, um, and the band, as we were listening, we just started to tune up our instruments to match his tuning and we just started playing along with him and you could see this it was barely there but you could see just that corner of his <laughs> mouth kind of <laughs> turn up ever so slightly and that night we performed that song that we created in that moment for 1400 people in a theater in that town mm. and at the end of the show he came up to me and, and he said what uh, tonight I discovered something it's not that Americans and Chinese can't play music together it's just that music is actually the communication of hearts mm. and that to me became the whole well that, that's enough yeah you get it. Ironically, uh, just to bust in for a second, um, I have had extremely uh, parallel experiences back when I was uh, in Newgrass Revival in the, um, in the 80s, yeah. the 1980s. And, um, yeah, yes. <laughs> <laughs> that's and, kind of the century I was, that, where my mind went. Yeah. That's good, that's good. <laughs> and, uh, and we got to do these State Department tours, USIS, USIA, yeah. which are basically, they call them propaganda tours. But uh, we got to go to India and Bangladesh. We got to go to a lot of amazing places. And at a certain point, I realized that we had like an ambassador status. Um, so um, I started cabling ahead and saying, find me musicians. You know, I want, when I get there, I want to jam with somebody. And, and started, uh, they 
people would show up. You know, we'd, we'd get to a country, and I'd get to play with these these people, and we'd st- they'd start out like, what is, what is just like Abby said, what is this? Why, you know, why am I here? Why do I have to do this? And when we'd start to play, and the whole room would change. It, would just, it was like almost the color had changed from mm. this dark to technicolor, you know, like the Wizard of Oz, you know, wow. when, when you land in wow. Oz. And, and so it was such an exciting thing. That was part of what made me feel confident that going to Africa could be that way, because I'd had that experience over, over and over again. And when the Flectones uh, got the opportunity to do a trip like that, um, to the Pacific Rim, um, we made it a point that every country we went to, somebody from the local culture would come on stage and perform with us. Mm. And it broke the ice like like nothing. It felt so great to do, but that was the favorite part of the show, obviously, for the locals, because we were celebrating their culture, and we had taken the time to learn something of their music, which was really, uh, it just really was a great thing. Mm. So. But we both came to this separately, and uh, it's one of the... And then we found each other. And then yeah, we found each right. other. <laughs> <laughs> well, and so that, um, that aspiration, that very kind of American ambition you had to go to law school and make policy and change the world, it, I mean, you, you, this is a whole other way in to the same thing at a different, at a human level. Mm-hmm. That's... Um, Bela, you um, have said, and I do again believe you really said this, that the first time you heard Abigail's music, you were listening in the car and you got stopped for speeding. Yeah. Yeah, it was, it was out, out Franklin. Uh, there was a because party. you were just so caught up in the so Yeah, she gave me, in fact, I, I, it's not really the first time. It's been slightly sanitized okay. story. Uh, but um, what, the first time I heard her, uh, it was at a party, and she was playing these very, very sad, slow songs with a bunch of girls gathered around her. And I was going, this is just not for me, you know. <laughs> it was really, it was just really slow. And it was beautiful, but I was like, yeah, okay. She's good, you know. But, uh, but then she gave me this, this CD uh, at this party, and I started listening to it, and I had a completely different experience because the banjo was up front, there was this groove to it, and she was singing like you just heard her with this ancient sound, uh, very connected to traditional music, and I just started driving faster and faster <laughs> and going, wow, I really like this. I think I was even talking to myself, and then I got pulled over and had to walk the line. <laughs> well, I'm going to do my radio thing now. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being, today with musicians Bela Fleck and Abigail Washburn in a public conversation at the Belcourt Theater in Nashville, Tennessee. Um, you know, it seems to me, Bela, that your story is also about kind of, not so, as, as much as it's about traveling through places, it's about traveling through genres, kind of, I don't know, as an old Star Trek lover, taking the banjo where no banjo has gone before. Mm. <laughs> or at oh. least maybe we don't all know that it's gone there before. <laughs> Wait, could you do that, Abby? I can't remember it. How does it go? That's good. Yeah, although I'm more of a next generation fan. See, and there are clearly people in the audience who know what we're talking about. Um, I have to say, the titles of the Flectones albums are really intriguing. Uh, Flight of the Cosmic Hippo. By you the way, we had a bus driver recently, and he said, man, I love the Flectones. I said, really? He said, yeah, I got your album. I said, which album? He said, oh, you know, the one with the pig on the cover. <laughs> which one was that? 
Flight of the Cosmic Hippo. Flight of the hippo. Cosmic Hippo. <laughs> so it didn't have a hippo on the cover. It had a hippo on the cover. It did have a hippo on the cover. I see. Okay. And then there's UFO Tofu. That's a palindrome. It spells the same thing backwards. And so we had a, we had a long um, piece. Oh, I see. Yeah, it we does. Had a long piece. <laughs> well, we had a musical piece that was a palindrome that was about five minutes long mm-hmm. that all went forward and went backwards. It had about six different palindromes buried within it. And... Um, and that was where, and so we used to tell stories about palindromes before we do that song, and that one popped up. A guy named Baby Gramps told us about that one, and hmm. yeah. That's great. Mm-hmm. And then three flew over the cuckoo's nest. Yeah, we were, we were searching hard at that point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you kind of, <laughs> you really hit the peak with UFO tofu palindromes. Um, and we, um, we did a show, we, we did an event in, in New York City in the fall um, about Bach. It was during the Bach month with a computer scientist and a Bach lover. And we actually put this recording, this amazing recording of you playing Bach's partita for a violin, number three, on the banjo on our website. It was so gorgeous. You um, have incredible taste. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I was then also really amazed to be, learn that you've written a concerto for banjo with the, and you did it with the Nashville Symphony Orchestra, with the 80, an 80-piece 80 symphony orchestra. Very intrigued by uh, the title, The Imposter, mm. that you gave to that. Would you talk about... Sure, yeah. And, and really, The Imposter, and Abby and I have talked about feeling like you're the outsider, you're the other. Yeah, it kind of comes back to this idea that the banjo is not a real instrument. Yeah. Yeah. And especially, and I, and I realize at some point that um, I'm always putting myself in positions playing the banjo where it hasn't really been played, not always, but often putting myself in positions where the banjo hasn't been played before, so I have to figure out a role for the banjo in with Indian musicians or with Chinese musicians or, or with classical musicians or with jazz musicians. And... Um, um, the only place I really know exactly what the banjo is supposed to do uh, is bluegrass. That's the place where I know exactly what almost every banjo player of note has played since Earl Scruggs from till now. I, I know how they would do things, and I can make my choices based on an understanding. But everywhere else, I'm kind of waiting for somebody to say, "Hey, you're not supposed to be in here. Get out of here!" You know. <laughs> so that, that's a feeling that I sometimes get uh, when I'm feeling insecure, like uh, somebody's going to catch me. And kick me out, and yeah. and so with the imposter, you know, playing in front of a, a a symphony orchestra and writing the piece and everything too, I, w- I was uh, had my ears peeled for somebody to eject me. Yeah. yeah, and then there's this place at the very end where the banjo kind of breaks free from the rest of the orchestra, and um, how what what would, what well, did that symbolize? In writing for you? the in writing the piece, um, I was making uh, a serious attempt not to do a um, Appalachian concerto. Uh, the most expected thing to do with a banjo is to right. like put it in a uh, show it off in its you know traditional glory within an orchestra. And I really wanted this to be a piece where the banjo was not that. And that's kind of often that's what I find myself doing is trying to prove that the banjo can be viable not just um, as a traditional instrument, but for the sound and the abilities that it has that no other instrument has. Um, and um, but it, but by the end of the piece, I was really I had been trying hard, you know, to to, to complete this piece, and I wasn't coming up with a big ending. Right. And that's when desperately I reached for Earl Scruggs, and he was there for me. <laughs> and, uh, and not only that, uh, I dedicated the piece to Earl Scruggs, and uh, and got to play it for him um, 
before the premiere, and he came to the premiere, and it was the last uh, concert that he came to. Really? Yeah, and he passed away maybe four, uh, five or six months later. Oh. So it was uh, some some closure there. Yeah. But he was he was very sweet. I I it felt to me like you know you really have come full circle. I mean, I I also I read that you when you first started getting into banjo and bluegrass, you were trying to cover up your your accent. Yeah. And then you know here you are, kind of really. Um, bringing all these things together and even you've also isn't there a song in your um, in your album you've done together from Bela Bartok oh yeah Is, yeah yeah. so you've actually come back to your namesake uh, well it really when I started writing that piece that was when I finally said look I gotta get into this Bartok stuff it's just it's, people keep asking me oh you, you must really be a Bartok fan because he was always exploring folk music and classical music and I'm like well I, I really haven't heard very much of it and I think I, because of the complexity of my relationship with the person who gave me that name yeah. I wasn't eager to embrace it but at the point when, um, when I was writing this piece it was like okay let's just deal with all of this stuff yeah, and, and, and you so had met listening. your father at that point. You yeah, had some kind mm-hmm. of a lot of the sort of uh, Darth Vaderism uh, had sort of subsided by making him into a real person, and then uh, um, I was ready to go face Bartok, which turned out to be some of the greatest music I ever heard. Really? Oh my really? God! It's so, it's so different. It's so um, um, free uh, from convention um, and imaginative, uh, and I, I love it. Uh, I really do. So yeah, so I, I found a couple of uh, piano pieces and arranged them for Abby and I to play on the, on the new album. That was the first Bartok that I've done. But I'd like to actually like, try to learn a violin concerto on the banjo and things like that. That would mm. be a lot of fun. Mm. Um, the two of you do something, which, which you did here just before we started, which is kind of unusual, sing, singing and the, the banjo and song together. And um, I've... I've seen you you both talk about this your the music you do together in terms of like dialogue and conversation. Well, that's Abby. Like I am not a, a talker. This is a lot for me. Okay, you're doing really but, well. Thank you. Thank you're you. really I holding mean, your own. I, but but um, <laughs> if you came to a Flectone show, maybe there would be speaking two or three times in the whole night, and it would be brief. And I, I and part of it was intentional that it was like we want the music to speak, we, we, and we want it to be about that. Um, but uh, but Abby is a, is a great storyteller, and she reaches out to the audience and really gets to know them and, and talks a lot. So I've, I've had to learn to come to terms with that and, and, and participate in that as well. We'd get off stage after the first couple of shows, and he'd say, um, I don't know how to put this, but could we talk a little less, maybe? <laughs> we only had time for, like, five songs in a two-hour set. <laughs> I was trying to get the song to, okay, to right, time but, ratio and, up and, a little bit. But I didn't necessarily... Okay, so there is the literal conversation, but there's also the kind of the dialogue between the banjo and the voice, and also the dialogue between your two... Quite, when you're both playing the banjo, different kinds of banjo and different styles, and Right? Oh, on stage, like as yeah. a part of our, our yeah. performance, yes. Yeah. I think a, a real intention when we were finally taking our thing together seriously, not just our love for one another, but our ability to perform together, which really hit when we realized um, we're going to have a baby. 
So we decided that we needed to really make an effort to put out something in the world that was like a formal offering uh, musically uh, as a duo. So that we could travel together and, and not right. be split up like so many couples that have, have babies and one, of the, and one of the two of them travels. So we decided we'd throw our forces together Just and, and hit the road. take the baby with us. And that's what we've been doing for the last couple of years. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so when we were planning our, our record, we, we thought, we know that two banjos and a vocal can be a really wonderful thing, but we have to... We actually do have to prove it. So we uh, decided to create soundscapes that differed from track to track and that differed from song to song, which meant including different types of banjos. There's, um, back in the late 1800s, there were actual banjo orchestras all over America. They were really popular. There were big uh, double banjo basses with end pins that people stood and played and they looked like taiko drums with strings on them and um, piccolo banjos and banjo ukes and banjo lins and uh, it, it goes on banjo why, cellos why did that go and away? Why? exactly right yeah I mean why do we not even know this? <laughs> no. yeah and we find that to be so exciting that there are this this fa- that there is this web and this family of banjos that have all these amazing different sounds to them. So it was really ba- Bela's idea to bring in all of these different registers. And so Bela plays banjo uke on a song. I play cello banjo. He plays cello banjo. He actually created a a banjo for the record. Um, kind uh, of a baritone banjo. A baritone. It was just a missing register. Uh, that was so we could so yeah. So but I think what, what's really going on. Um, that that might it, the music sounds very natural and almost traditional because it's just two banjos playing together. But clawhammer banjo players like Abby and three finger players like I, like I like I like is I. that good? Like I um, very rarely play together, and and I it's hard for us to think of a, of a, any duos and historically that combine those two, and that's right. the whole band. That's what they do. Um, but we created tried to create a tapestry, and and uh, we 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 have different techniques, but we both ripple. So when we get our rippling to line up together, it just works. Hmm. And the registers is, is a great help to keep it from all sounding the same. But also having something that's not rippling on top of that is very completing. And Abby's voice, you know, sings out over the top of those 16th notes. The 16th notes are the way a banjo, which doesn't have much sustain, uh, creates the impression of sustain by repeating notes, hitting open strings, keeping things ringing. And you can really feel like there's a sustain in a soulful long note. But there's nothing like having a long-held note over the top that. of it. And that's why fiddle and banjo work so great, but vocals and banjo is mm. fantastic. But it, it's kind of unusual, isn't it? It's not, you know, singing and banjo? Yeah, singing and banjo. I no? wouldn't think so. No, no, no because I think the way you guys do it? No? Well, I think it's personal to us the way that we're the doing it. The way that we're doing it as a duo, just a banjo duo with vocal, uh-huh. is unique. Okay. But in old time music in particular, which is the tradition that I've been learning a lot from, I was actually in an all girl old-time string band, and there are so many women out there playing old-timey banjo. I mean, you have to be in a certain strange, uh, limited cult of people to actually (laughs) enjoy this trance-like repetitive music. However, if you are in it, you do know that there are a lot of women that sit and play the banjo and sing sing old tunes. Okay. But what I think is, is, is starting to happen now, and what I saw happening with Abby's music is you know, when you think about a singer-songwriter, you think, oh, he plays the piano, Billy Joel, okay, you know, plays the guitar, James Taylor. They write their songs built around the way they're playing that instrument as they open their mouth and utter sound. Right, right. But it's hard to think of people that write songs on the band, you know, playing the banjo while they're composing their songs. 
And so I think that's when Abby writes her own songs, I hear that contemporary, that voice of today connected to, you know, the, the tradition that she loves, but in songs that are about her experience, then that have a different tonality. And um, I think that's, that's a, new, a, a new development. Right. And she's not the only one, but it's definitely, she's one of the great ones of it. Oh, honey. <laughs> um, I, on your album too, as well, this, this album you produced together, um, there's one song called Banjo Banjo, one tune called Banjo Banjo, that in the liner notes, it says that you wrote that, you sat down and made that music at when you first felt Juno kick. And was it in Tecate? It was. Maybe when we were together. Yeah, the first, the first, uh, yes. the first writing se- uh, session where that tune came out was in Takati. It was. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That it, it's such a special place for us. Um, my grandmother June went there every year since yeah. they had it's those just, real it's, cars. I should say it's the original. It's the original health resort. Yeah. And now it's kind of a spa health resort, but it yeah. was very radical and suspect in the 50 years ago. Yeah. 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 And my grandma was a part of that. Uh-huh. And her ashes are spread there. Her ashes are there. Yeah. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. So it's a very important place uh, for Abby's family. Yeah. But I have to say, you know, it's enviable, you know, to think about this being part of your of your marriage, your your friendship and relationship and a way that you can celebrate, you know, you can literally make music together. <laughs> It's great. I mean, we're constantly yeah. uh, amazed by our, our, our situation. As we get to travel down the road with these very special people that, that uh, Richard and, and, uh, and Bebop and... Uh, and my mom Abby's often. mom and Helen that, yeah. that, that are like a support team that help yeah. us do these concerts and, and make it all happen. And, it, you know, Juno goes to bed before the show usually and uh, sleeps in the bunk. And it takes a lot of people to make all of that work. But it's really, we get to go out and play our music. Yeah. It's a sweet, sweet situation. Yeah. Yeah. Probably the hardest thing to do is to find time to make new music because yeah. we wake up in the morning with Juno on the bus and the first thing we want to do is just go play with him and be with him. And so we do that. We spend several hours together with Juno until he falls asleep for his nap. And then we're wiped out. And then we're tired. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I do have to say, um, because I have been watching the TV show Nashville, Oh yeah. I am Me aware too. that this juggling music, making music, and, and a relationship can be challenging. I, I don't know how Raina does it. I really don't <laughs> I know. And now Juliet. Oh, my. Yeah. I thought maybe I'd try to go visit Deacon in the hospital while I was here. <laughs> He'd love that. He'd really appreciate that. Um, what do you all think about having this Nashville TV show? Is it just a soap opera? Oh, Is it it's fun? Just fun? It's fun. like a... Yeah. I, it's a guilty pleasure. I mean, we, yeah. all the musicians that I <laughs> know me too. from here, we all, we all love it. And, and yeah. we, you know, it's, it's neat to see our friends that are, that, that are in the show. Occasionally mm-hmm. we see people who are extras on the show or we hear people, you know, play in and, and see all the places we know. So, yeah, we get a kick yeah. out of it. Well, actually what I love, you know, it's, it's, a, it's an evening soap opera like a lot of TV that I watch. But um, it's, it's very joyful and wonderful the way music is part of the story and yeah. just having the music in it as this and it is real real music yeah and those actors a lot most of them are real musicians right yeah. we we definitely relate to the show in the in so many ways i mean i know it might be aggrandized or turned into something slightly more dramatic just a little for for the show but uh, you know, all the, the, the struggle with the record company or trying to find your own right. voice or, you know, being a parent and being a, a career woman. 
or um, whether to tell tell the truth about your sexual orientation. <laughs> It really runs the gamut of life. It sure does. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, this is fun. <laughs> Something also that intrigued me, actually, uh, uh, neither one of you has a really extensive professional training, right? I mean, and, I mean, this is you. You really came to this very late. But Bela, I mean, you are the premier banjo player possibly in the world. And when you did this, I was reading when you did this, uh, when you did the, the, the concerto, you, you had to, this is fascinating, that you used a computer to help you translate, you know, between the difference between what you knew and how to do this kind of orchest- orchestral composition, that you don't have real formal composition. Well, it was the training. same problem I had in high school. There was, there was nothing for the banjo. They didn't have a place to put me. And then when I, when, uh, after high school, I moved to Boston, and I would have loved to have gone to Berkeley, but they didn't have a place to put me you know, there either. So I just you know, was trying to figure out music that I loved, you know, one note at a time. If I loved a Charlie Parker solo or a, a Coltrane solo, I just tried to figure out the first measure on the banjo and just gradually you know, build up my own understanding of the banjo. So when trying to write a piece like that, um, it's not that I don't write music. I write banjo tablature. That's the way we. Use, that's the way banjo players communicate about how we play. And the reason we use these, this number system for for uh, banjo communication is because there's a lot of places to play the same note, and those notes come fast. So it's not enough to know that it's a D. You need to know which D it is and and what notes coming next. So it's better for me to see a three and a seven and a five than you know than a D, an A and a C, and. Um, Banjo players will know what I'm, what I'm talking about, what position <laughs> yeah, I'm talking yeah. about. Yeah, right? totally. Yeah. I'm yeah. down, I dig. Yeah. 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 So, which mean, means when it came time to, and, and then when I play with people like the Flectones or my bluegrass friends, Sam Bush and Jerry Douglas and, and Edgar Meyer, who's a great classical musician as well as everything else, um, I used to just bring a sketch and I trust them to fill it all in. Hmm. Great musicians that are improvisers will do that. You don't write out every note for them. But when you're writing for an orchestra, you have to. So how was I going to do that? Because I didn't have the skills to do that. And so I did it with uh, using that banjo tablature and a computer program called Sibelius, where I could write the stuff in banjo tablature and then copy it and paste it onto a violin stave or a French horn stave. And uh, it would turn it into notation that they could read. And then I could hand that notation to a copyist who could clean it up and make it legible. And that's, it was sort of, it slowed me, you know, it slowed me down. But uh, I honestly, I wasn't going very fast. All right. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> And, you know, Abigail, I have to say, when I first uh, experienced the two of you, I, I also assumed that you were somebody who'd, you know, grown up learning this. And you are, um, it, well, you're very much considered to be now. You're, 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 you play with Bela Fleck, and, you know, the two of you yes. are this, 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 this <laughs> banjo-playing duo. And when you were pregnant, you know, some, real, some music reporter said, and now they will give birth to the holy banjo emperor, right? <laughs> um, but, but part of what you've been out there talking about, and you, you delivered the commencement address for Colorado College for your alma mater, and you, you talked a lot about this this way um, you were open to experience and you really discovered this thing that has become defining and in fact you are defining you know you're, you're helping to define this kind of music now in the culture but it it was very unexpected and you didn't prepare for it all your life in, an, in a linear way mm. well I, a piece of my story that I don't really ever tell because it just adds 
another 30 seconds, is um, the fact that uh, when I left Vermont on my road trip to go south before I was headed to China to become a lawyer, I, uh, my first stop, my very first stop was at the Berry Center for Buddhist Studies, and I spent five days meditating. And it was the first time I ever meditated in my whole life. And to this day, it's one of the hardest things I've ever done. To sit still, my body ached, I became afraid I was hurting myself, and then I felt the voices inside my head telling me about all the times I had hurt, and I went into the darkest place. And one day I remember I was sitting there, it must have been three days in or something, and I went into this very deep place. Finally, I wasn't really thinking a whole lot, and I came out of it hours later, and my entire shirt was covered with tears and boogers. I mean, it was not pretty. <laughs> and I, 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 in that moment, I stood up, and nobody was in the room. They had all left. And I know that I had let go of something major. Um, I'm not even totally sure what it is to this day, but I know that I didn't really feel like a victim anymore when I left that place. I felt like I was clean and fresh and pure and I could make my decisions. And that within days, I was in Louisville, Kentucky, playing the four songs I knew on the banjo and was offered a record deal in Nashville, Tennessee. And I went to Nashville instead of, I came to Nashville instead of going to China to go to law school. And I felt ready for that. I felt ready. Were you were you always a singer, or did that come later too? Yeah, I always loved singing. I was uh -huh. in choir all through school, and yeah. uh, I'd always try out for the solos, and I never got them. So I really didn't fancy myself much of a singer. Yeah. Uh, I didn't think I was going to be perceived as a good see, singer. See, see, that's what I got out of getting ready to talk to you. You don't, you don't really consider yourself to be a great musician. No, you, you no. don't. You 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 feel like this is something you came too late, and you, this imposter language. I mean, you're. I don't think you do feel like an imposter because you, you you throw yourself into it so joyfully. Um, yeah. But you don't think of yourself the way other people think of you as a musician. Right. <laughs> no, I I I don't, and I. Um, but I. That is no harm or foul to how I um, feel about the music. Yeah, yeah. And I, I feel like uh, mu music, just like most of my life, I hope that it's a service to people. <laughs> this goes back to my childhood. Yeah. I do hope that I'm helping. I'm hoping that I'm continually through the music cultivating myself to have compassion and empathy and to express that to people. And, you know, I was talking to my mom today as we were walking around the lake trying to just think of things from my childhood and not forget too much when I talk to you tonight. And, <laughs> <laughs> and um, I was remembering what a um, sensitive child I was. I was so uh, tuned in to everybody's feelings. And it was a beautiful thing because I saw people's feelings before I saw them. And uh, now I consider it a great gift, but at the time it, I didn't know how to manage it. And so I felt darkness a lot because I immediately would recognize people feeling darkness. And right. um, even in high school, a girl who had schizophrenia and talked to herself in the bathroom, I would just be friendly with her because I could see she was struggling. And 
the counselor said that she said, I heard the voices too, you know. It was just really tuned into something there. And I, I saw that my mom, you know, it's, it comes to me honestly. And my whole life I've had to learn how to manage that. And a beautiful thing is that a song teaches me to manage that. Because I feel something so strong. Most songs I, I choose to sing unless they're... Because a song becomes a container for it's it? It's a container for the empathy and for the mm -hmm. sensitivity. So I can feel something so strongly. Um, like I've been singing the song, um, Come All You Coal Miners, that was written by an amazing woman named Sarah Ogan Gunning. And she was raised in a, a coal camp and her child starved to death because they couldn't get milk for her baby. And her husband died of black lung. And all of these things, I, he I hear her story and I'm crying and I'm crying and I start to sing the song. Come all you coal miners, wherever you may be, and listen to a story that I'll relate to thee. My name is not the next tree, but the truth to you I'll tell. I am a coal miner's wife, I'm sure I wish you well. Coal mining is the most dangerous work in our land today. With plenty of dirty slaving work and very little pay. Coal miner, won't you stand up and open your eyes and see what the dirty capitalist system is doing to you and me. They'll take your very lifeblood. They'll take your children's lives. Take fathers away from children and husbands away from wives. Coal miner, won't you organize wherever you may be and make this a land of freedom for workers like you and me. Dear miner, they will slave you till you can't work no more. And what do you get for your living but a dollar at the company store? A tumble-down shack to live in, snow and rain pours in the top. You have to pay the company rent, and your pain, it never stops. I am a coal miner's wife, I'm sure I wish you well. Let's sink this capitalist system in the darkest pits of hell. So I get to, I get to have it. I get to feel it. I get to be with her. Yeah. But then it's okay to let go. Yeah. We did it. Mm -hmm. And it's a container, but it also it it touches other people also. That's the hope. Mm -hmm. That actually was a um, kind of an amazing demonstration of um, something that I was going to read to you, Bela. This was somebody. This is from a blog called The Rabbi's Pen. Have you ever heard this? My crack producer, Lily, found this for me. <laughs> um, spiritual Reflections on Bela Fleck and the Flecktones. By a, a by rabbi. Oh. I, did, I, didn't, I can't, couldn't find the rabbi's name. Um, music is a language, a way I, of, I might have posted this. <laughs> 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 All right, we'll take it with a grain of salt. Um, 
Music is a language, a way of communicating, a vehicle for bringing greater peace, tolerance, and humor into our own hearts and into the world. Music is a spiritual discipline and a great teacher. Great musicians like Bela Fleck and the Flecktones are also great teachers. Do you ever think of yourself? <laughs> Do you ever think of yourself as a teacher? Is that... Um. I don't know. I mean, I, I, uh, I know there are people who, that, have, that's, that uh, learn from what I do, yeah. and it's exciting to see people that have taken uh, what, what, I've, what I do and built on it, just the way I built on Earl Scruggs and Tony Trishka and so many great people that I learned from. Yeah. But I don't formally teach very much, and, and in the past it was mostly because I was just so busy trying to do what, I, what I've been doing, you know, and, but uh, I actually love teaching. Hmm. I, I think actually that act of teaching and that spiritual discipline was also just in, you know, in that music you just, you just shared. It's like, it was an embodiment of this. This person also said, um, at the Ryman Auditorium, Bela Fleck took a few moments to honor one of his teachers, the late Earl Scruggs. There was a palpable sense of reverence and holiness throughout the auditorium, as many of us understood the great love that emerges when true teaching and learning have occurred. I don't know. Well, there's a lot you can do with instrumental music, and, and uh, t- sometimes we, t- we tend to sideline it and think of it as background music or mm-hmm. support for vocals. Like a lot of times, I can't tell you how many times I've been playing with somebody uh, for an audience, and the singer sings, and then as soon as uh, we go into the instrumental part, people start talking. It doesn't matter who it is. Really? It could be with some of the greatest musicians in the world. It's like a, a go-to, oh, that's not the main thing, but, you know go to India, you might have a very different experience of a spiritual experience listening to music. Uh, it doesn't have to be India, wherever you, wherever you hear it. Or even people hearing uh, the great German classical music, you know, or Chopin can have a, a pretty ecstatic mm-hmm. experience through the works of, of human beings. But um, I think the, the great ones uh, are trying to access this uh, feeling when they play. And, and the pieces that I've come up with that, that have a strong... Uh, mood or that kind of a component, I couldn't explain to you what I was going for when I was trying to write them. I might have found a sound that, that has expressed a feeling or a mood that um, I tried to write a piece around, and um, I couldn't explain what that mood is even. But, there, but, if, but someone who listened to it would know exactly what I was talking about. Hmm. We... Um are drawing to a close, and we're going to hear a little bit more music from you. I, um, I, you know, I, I, um, Abigail, so one of the, I often will kind of circle around to this question of um, what you've learned through the life you've lived um, about what it means to be human and, and how, how perhaps that has evolved since, you know, your, your early days, things that you know now or believe now that or experience now that would have surprised you then. I felt, um, I feel, Abigail, that you've been really articulate about your wisdom in the commencement address you gave at Colorado College and also this beautiful TED Talk that you gave. And um, I'd love for you to reflect on that question. And I, I, I would also love for you to tell that story that you told um, in the TED Talk about uh, the little girl because it seemed to be kind of a moment that crystallized that for you how you how you think about this big question of why why you're here and and why you live your life the way you do I was in China after the the big 
earthquake in 2008. I hope I'm right about that. The years are flying by now that I have a baby. And they will continue to fly by. <laughs> That's right. And with a friend of mine, we were making, Dave Liang, uh, the Shanghai Restoration Project, we were making a, a record with the kids. Uh, and this actually happened before we came back to make the record. I went there just to see what I could do, because I had spent a lot of time in Sichuan, uh, my great teacher who taught me my tremendous love for China. Old Lady Wang is from Sichuan. And so I felt like I really had to go back to Sichuan and see what was going on with people there and how they were recovering. 80,000 people died are the, uh, you know, the estimates. And it was a lot more than that, and a lot of people affected. So I, I went around and joined a, fr a couple of friends who were doing a quake relief project. And they said, you know, why don't you just come play some music for, for the kids at these relocation schools? They had been taken away from their families at, um, at home because many of their homes were destroyed, and they had to, the parents had to stay there and rebuild them, so the schools moved to other places. And the kids were struggling so much. I mean, they were not only taken away from their homes, but they had lost a lot of family members, and they were living in these uh, temporary um, trailers in a place they didn't know at all, with just their teachers there and their, their fellow students. So I said, just come play for the kids, and maybe, maybe it'll relieve their, you know, their, their minds for a moment and just sing some music. So I did, and I had so much fun with the kids. And at the end of the, my performances, the kids would always come up to me and they'd, they'd say, you sang for us, now we want to sing for you, you know? And so most of them, I would listen to like 90 pop songs, Chinese pop songs, you know? <laughs> you know, just... <laughs> and it was very cute and fun. Um, but this one girl came up to me and she said... Uh, uh, Wang Dajie, which means big sister Wang. Washburn is Wang. She uh, said, uh, Wang Big sister Wang, I want to sing you a song that my mother taught me. And my mother died in the earthquake. And so she sat down on my lap and she started singing to me. And tears started coming down my face and she started to cry too and I did I had this moment where I just saw this light shining from her and from me and I felt so very connected to her and to everyone and I just knew that I wanted to live and I do want to live in that light as much as possible with her and with you and with everyone and that's how I try to live my life. Yeah. That is so lame. <laughs> <laughs> He's so sweet. Okay, your turn. <laughs> no. I didn't bring any tissues up here. Bela <laughs> Fleck. Oh. How do you think about what you've learned? about what it means to be human that you po couldn't possibly have guessed growing up in... What's your favorite song? <laughs> <laughs> you like chocolate? <laughs> All right, come on. <laughs> uh, what was the question again? Yeah. <laughs> what does the banjo teach you about life? <laughs> That's a That's better a way to do question. it. Okay. Um, well, you know, I... 
I don't know. Um, it's, you know, it's where I put my energy. You know, I feel like everybody, you've got a certain amount of energy in your life to devote to various things. And I've yeah. been putting most of my energy into the banjo for uh, most of my life. And uh, actually, what's interesting, I mean, I'm learning as much about life right now from having a child mm -hmm. uh, yeah. with, with Abby. Mm. And um, Juno is a great teacher, you know. And, and, um, and I'm, I'm what you'd call a type A psychotic, um, musician, I've lived that way up till now. Where I could, I could make music the thing, the most important thing in the world, and and uh, and in a way, I thought that was that's my job. My job is to, and I know it's not true, but make believe that the banjo and what happens with the banjo is like the most important thing in the world, and that's why I'm. That's what I do. That's my job. I, that's yeah, the privilege that's I get calling. to experience. Uh, is like just like a great. Uh, Physicist has right. to believe that's the most important thing in the world right. to do the kind of work he wants to do. But once you have a kid, all of a sudden, it's clearly not the most important thing in the world. And so there's a lot of growing up that comes with that because uh, it's, you know, it's a different world. So the challenges now are how to keep the commitment that I made to this guy while keeping the commitment that I made to this girl and the, the guy who's uh, the little guy the who's The Holy at home. Banjo Emperor. Yeah. yeah. So the Holy, yeah, the Holy Banjo Emperor, yeah. yeah. So um, that's a challenge, but uh, you know we're figuring it out together, and and I'm finding that it's okay not to wake up and go you know work on hard music all all day and, and just stop and spend all morning with uh, watching this little kid full of wonder at these things you know. That's the best I can do. <laughs> well, it's great. Um, <laughs> It's been it's been a real joy and an honor to um, to dive deeply into what you do and who you are, and I'm glad you're in the world. And uh, thank you, thank you for making yourself available for this, and thank you all of you for coming. And now they're going to play some music for us again. Hi, guys. Would you guys sing with us? Yeah? <laughs> All right. This is an old song that was recorded on a, a porch in Merle's Inlet, South Carolina in the 1930s. And, I, you know, maybe we should try to learn it first. Although I think you're going to learn it really fast. So just warm up your voices. You gotta get the lips going. Yeah. Come on! Life is just so much more fun when you do that. I've got 
got the keys to the kingdom. The world can't do me no harm. Move on down to the sea Don't you sound that trumpet Till you hear from me I got the keys to the kingdom The world can't do me no harm I got the keys to the kingdom The world can't do me no harm I'm gonna sing that a lot John on the island Place him in a kettle of oil Then the angels came from heaven down And told him that the old wooden bowl I got the keys to the kingdom The world can't do me no harm I got the keys to the kingdom The world can't do me no harm Yeah